Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Today's guest is Mitch Kowalski, who is a lawyer, visiting professor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law, author, speaker, and co-host of the podcast series, Pardon My Objection, a show dedicated much like this one to exploring legal innovation and the future of law. As you will hear, Mitch is a voice for change in the legal profession. We discuss many things, including why lawyers need to base their pricing on value to the client rather than how many hours they put in, the need for regulation reform, including implementing a national regulator for all common law provinces, and Mitch also makes the case for a more decentralized legal profession and details why lawyers need to humble themselves in order to usher in some of the change we so desperately need. As you are probably gathering, Mitch pulls no punches when it comes to the difficult or controversial topics, and getting this unadulterated perspective is one of the reasons we love him as a guest. If you haven't already checked out Mitch's podcast and picked up his fantastic books titled Avoiding Extinction and the Great Legal Reformation, links to all of these are included in the show notes. On a final point, I would like to extend a warm invitation to all of you to the Good Lawyer Summit taking place this November 3rd and 4th. Day 1 of the summit is dedicated to the future of law and Day 2 to entrepreneurship and startups. We have a great lineup of speakers including today's guest Mitch Kowalski himself. This is a virtual event and although the tickets are free, they are limited so make sure you don't miss out and reserve yours today. Links as always in the show notes or by simply searching the Good Lawyer Summit in your favorite browser. Alright, that is it for me. Please enjoy today's discussion with Mitch Kowalski. Mitch, welcome back to the show. Thanks so so much for joining us again. Now, you were on the podcast a while back, but uh, let's briefly get you to reintroduce yourself. How would you describe your current perch in the legal community because you wear a number of different hats? How to describe it other than trying to keep my my fingers in a lot of different pies because that gives you perspective, right? I think the, the problem that we have with people understanding that the profession needs to change or should change or whatever you want to call it is the fact that they don't have a lot of perspective. So to the extent that you can go across a lot of different companies or firms or ideas or industries, the better. And so that's what, uh, that's what I like to do. So I do, I do some general counsel work with a company. I do the uh, course at University of Calgary, I write, I speak, I do all this kind of stuff. And it just puts me in touch with a wide range of people. And that's really the key, guys, is like the, the more people you talk to about different things and going across industries and disciplines, you get better ideas and you can come up with things that, that help the legal profession. Yeah. And, and just on that note, is the Mitch Kowalski sort of overarching goal to understand? Is it to, you know, make something change or is it to influence? Like, because I love that idea that you just shared about getting a bunch of different perspectives. I think you're totally right far too many law students and lawyers are sort of just going down a straight path and, you know, not 
even giving an opportunity to explore what else might be out there or what else could be. So for you, getting all those different perspectives, where do you hope that lands you or is that really articulated for yourself? You know, to, to be really blunt is to change the world, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean we, that, that, that's it. That's it. Like change the world, do something that, you know, when I'm long dead and gone, you know, I will be pushing that I help push change in some direction for the betterment of lawyers in the profession, for the betterment of students coming up into the profession. And equally important across all this is client experience is a lot better, right? So we talk about mental health all the time in, in legal profession, but you know what, if I can somehow move the needle a little bit better and make someone's practice a lot more family friendly for them or mentally health friendly for them, that's great. And so that's what gets me up in the morning is how can we do this better? Yeah. And I guess uh, kind of jumping on that thread right there is that you have not written one, but two books on legal reformation and innovation. Uh, the first was Avoiding Extinction, Reimagining Legal Services for the 21st Century, and the second, The Great Legal Reformation. So I guess, what what were you seeing that A, prompted you to write these books? And also, like, how did this passion, which you obviously have, come about in the first place? Mega frustration, <laughs> massive frustration, whatever you want. But the you know, and the listeners don't know this, but so I'll, so I'll bore them with my career path very quickly, is that I started out with, with a large firm, and then I moved, and I was very unhappy with that firm. And then I moved to a mid-sized firm, and I was very unhappy at that firm. Then I went in-house, and I was unhappy there. And so <laughs> when you're constantly unhappy, you move, you keep thinking, well, it's just this firm. If I go, you know, across the street to that firm, everything will be better. And then, oh, okay, maybe it's, private practice is the problem. So if I go in house, everything will magically be better. And, and every step that I took, I was still really frustrated, unhappy. So it really forced me to be introspective and say, okay, so is it, is it me? Is it the people I work with or what is it? And it really, it's the system, right? It's the way that, that people have traditionally said, this is the only way to practice law. And so as you start to think about that and unpack that, and then you start to read, you know, at that time, you know, Richard Susskind's book, The End of Lawyers had come out. So this is 08, 09-ish. And I'm going, oh, wow, there's this guy who, who is saying all these things that resonate with me and help me formulate my thoughts around why I was so unhappy and how we could do better. So it, it's just the career path I took. If I was at one firm for my whole life, and I was marginally happy and, you know, every day was the same and I was willing to accept that, then the three of us wouldn't be talking right now. Right? <laughs> right. Like I wouldn't have written the book because the book was born out of frustration and a desire to put on paper what was rattling around in my head. I think there are so many lawyers that find themselves in that exact situation where, you know, they've got a comfortable income, you know, certainly from the world that we came from, which was big law. You know, they've, they're making money, they're working hard, they're good at it, but that's kind of it. And there does seem to be this sort of missing piece, this purpose, this, you know, elements of fun, even that, you know, I think the people on the good lawyer team have experienced on our journey that just didn't seem to exist in 
you know, my prior role as an associate, as well as even working in house, which was a friendlier environment, but still, you know, laden with the same types of frustrations with the status quo and just how work gets done. And you guys are a great example of that, as you mentioned, and, and you see all the people who are out there being the reformers, trying new ideas. We're all kind of the same. We're all kind of going, man, like, this is not what I thought it was going to be like, or if only it was what I thought it would be like, I would stay in this firm and I would be doing stuff and, you know, but it's not. And on top of that, no one's listening to me. No one's listening to me <laughs> to say, Hey, you know, you know, why aren't you happy? How can we make you happy? Nobody cares about that. It's just, it's just, you know what, just do your work. It's just the way it is guys. Um, take it early. If you don't like it, then there's the door kind of thing. So it's just the way it is. It's hard to get that across to students. For me, it's trying to, to get that across that this isn't going to be suits when you walk out the door and, <laughs> or you know, the good fight or all this stuff that you fill your head with all these romantic notions of what law is like. And here are some ideas to help you bring it a little closer to that, perhaps, but certainly make it far away from, from where it is now. I can tell you experienced the exact same thing that I did, which was the seeming impossibility to you know force change from within i mm -hmm. remember back in, in when i was practicing you know in a big corporate shop trying to push forward ideas constantly i was definitely known as the <laughs> ideas guy and now that's a benefit to the company but in that former firm setting you know i was legitimately told to keep my ideas to myself because they didn't even want to hear them because, you know, those would force change. And, you know, the top dogs didn't like the idea of much change. Yeah, you don't want to be, you don't want to be labeled as a troublemaker in the firm. And, <laughs> you know, I guess if, if you're a, a mid-level partner, you can be a troublemaker because, you know, you, you are who you are in your firm, but in the, the first 10 to 15 years of practice, you kind of don't want that because you need to play nice with everyone in order to move up to the next level, right? And so that unfortunately will also cause you to just suck it up and buy into the program. And then by the time you get to the point in your career where you actually probably could make some change, you don't care anymore. You're just beaten out. Of, yeah, it's been beaten out of you, <laughs> yeah. right? And you just yeah. go, you know what? Screw it. I'm making, you know, I'm making pretty good money somehow find happiness somewhere else <laughs> on the weekends. Yeah, no, I, I think it, with my experience with, with the big firm too, is that everyone was so busy too, that I think that that could be exasperated by the method that firms make money by the billable hour, which I'm sure we'll touch on, but maybe can you just give us just a brief history on how we arrived at our current model of practicing law in the first place? Cause I think for most, especially law students, but even most lawyers, this has just been the way it's been done, but the partnership model and the billable hours is still a relatively new way of uh, practicing law. Is it, am I correct on that? Yeah, 100%. And it's really, really interesting that billable hour really in US and Canada has only caught on since, you know, sort of the late 50s, early 60s, right? So just 60 years ago, which is right. in the scheme of law as a profession, which spans hundreds of years, 60 years is ain't that, ain't that long. And we've somehow over the span of 60 years assumed that that's the only way to do things. So let's, let's step back for a second. Let's talk about the partnership. So 
traditionally, like if we went to Toronto or Calgary or Vancouver, you know, a hundred, hundred years, it's a turn of this last century. So two centuries. So we went 1900 lawyers would be practicing by themselves. They'd be pretty much solos. There might be hmm. two people practicing together because somehow they decided that it was a good idea to share, share a bit of office space and share some resources, share some clients. But traditionally law was a solitary practice. You were, did things by yourself. Um, and then as time went on, sort of, you know, in the 20s, 30s, in the 40s and 50s, of last century, 1920s, 30s, I have to now say 19 in front of things. There was a realization that, oh, there's, there's more work. Now we can, if we get together, then we can, you know, service more clients or service our client better because I don't do litigation. I do commercial real estate. And so there's always going to be some litigation stuff that I'm not very good at. So if I bring in my litigation buddy and then a tax person and so on and so forth, and things just start to grow. And as legal needs and corp corporations in particular started to grow with you know, more regulatory issues and and lawsuits and what have you, firms just start to explode in, you know, 50s and 60s, you know, 70s and 80s, things just like exploded. And so the model of partnership, which is great for two or three or maybe five lawyers working together, was never designed for 200 partners, where you don't know who all your partners, it was designed around, you knew who your partners were, your values and the way you want to do business, all those things aligned and they weren't just another body thrown into the mix that could pump more, you know, cash into the partnership for us to share. And so as time went on, no one thought about reevaluating that. They just said, well, that's what we always do. It's really law is about looking backwards and saying, we've always done it that way. Even to the point of absurdity where you say 300 partners, that's stupid. Right. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, because it's yeah. basically a corporation with a bunch of shareholders that is still bound to all of these nonsensical, you know, partnership rules and norms. If you came to one of these huge law firms, and even even fifty partners is is absurd. You couldn't possibly know all you you know who they are, and you might you know see them twice a year at the the firm party, but they're on a different floor, or you hardly interact with them. That's not a partnership. That's just somebody who happens to work with you and sharing the cash. But if you went to these firms and said, there's a new tech company that wants to set up and start its business, would you start them as a partnership or would you start them a corporation? They'd all look at you like you're insane, right? They'd say, well, of course, it's a corporation. Here's all the reasons why you do a corporation. You say, and then you turn around and say, so why are you guys doing it different? Oh, well, law, this is always what we did. You know, it's been incremental. You know, it didn't go from one to a hundred overnight. And so that incremental nature of the change, you know, and just like, it's, it's almost like inertia. And then the other thing being the world has gotten a lot more complicated. And as you noted, especially when it comes to business and corporations, one of the things with good lawyer we try to do is connect entrepreneurs with the right lawyer, with the right expertise, because, you know, we don't really believe in generalists and, you know, one person's ability to understand all of the facets of business law and IP law and everything else. So I think that there is this need for specialization in this really complex world we're living in, but that doesn't justify the partnership model. And there are benefits to being able to go to a firm that has everybody under one roof, but there are so many costs. And that's really what we're trying to do is try to take advantage of the benefits, the connecting you with the right expertise, but eliminating 
the holdups, the, the slow moving nature of a huge partnership that dumps out all the retained earnings every year, you know, partner draws and starts fresh. It's not a business model designed to be big. Right. That's all we're saying. We're not saying that it's like a stupid business model. We're, all we're saying is, hey, it's, it's not particularly useful when you get to a certain point in time. Well, let me throw this something out to you guys. You, you, you tell me, when you make a motion picture, the motion picture, the producers bring together all the different pieces, right? So they bring a director together, they bring the stars together, they bring the camera guys together, and they bring them together for this project. They do all this magical, cool stuff, and then they break apart. And I'm just wondering now whether we're moving into that kind of era in law, right? And this is, Brett, this is your point, is that you know, we want the right lawyer for you for this particular thing. They're not part of a firm. And so we get to the point where there's a whole bunch of solos all working, doing their own thing. They come together maybe for a big project because you need three or four different specific disciplines. They do their thing and then they break apart and they go back and forth in that kind of a model. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, we're building that. I, I love the, the movie production analogy before law school. <laughs> told this story on the podcast many times. I ran a painting business, ran a contracting business, learned how to estimate, which is something that still shocks me how little we do in the profession and really like one of the main drivers of why good lawyers have been successful thus far. And, you know, same thing. You have a big project. You have the quarterback of the project, the GC, general contractor, and then you bring in all the expertise you need for that project. And then, like you said, when the project's done, everybody goes back and starts working on other projects and you can bring these people together for projects as opposed to the really confined model that is giant law firms. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's a good segue into the pricing discussion as well is that, so I'm general counsel of a, a development company here called Alun, and I'm working on these contracts, helping out with contracts for, with a general contractor. And they give us a number, right? Like we say, okay, it is $200 million to build this building. And of course, if there's change in circumstances, stuff like that, change of scope, you know, change orders, everybody understands that in the world. But as lawyers, we just want to say it'll be whatever it is. So it's a skill set that, that lawyers need to develop because A, you can probably make more money if you, if you price correctly because you're pricing based on the value to the client and not how much time you spend. So, and, and that's how the general contractors work, right? They're saying, okay, so here's, here's my profit portion. This is how much I need to move from this job. And these are how much all the little parts cost. And I you know, work it all out and I give you a number. And there's no reason why as lawyers, we can't do that, even though the rest of the world is doing that with super sophisticated, complicated projects. Totally. Yeah. And you know, the, it depends is just such a bullshit argument in my mind, <laughs> because it's just a refusal to take any risk on lawyers right. by our, our nature are typically pretty risk adverse creatures, but the lawyer is always going to be in a better position to take a guess on how long a task will take than the client is. And the refusal to take any of that risk is a failing of our profession on a grand scale. And to your point, it hurts us because less people want to buy services that they don't know the price of. And this comes back to one of the, 
the key numbers that really started good lawyer in the early days, which was 77% of legal needs going unmet coming out of the Quill report. That is a huge opportunity. And we're already cutting into that just by offering fixed fee services. You know, our services are more affordable than you're going to find at a law firm, but they're not like going to law depot to get templates. You're, you're getting professional lawyer help with your business and that costs money, but getting that transparency at the outset turns people on a lot. And it's what they're used to in virtually every other area that they get services in. It's just bizarre for me that the perception, because I'm going to you because you're supposed to know what you're doing. You've done this kind of stuff a million times. You know where this can go. So there's no reason why you can't figure that out in advance and say, yeah, this is what the number is. And if you can't, so my question is, why am I going to you? Because you're essentially telling me you just don't know and you're just going to figure it out. As a client, that's not what I want to hear. You mentioned uh, that you're a GC for uh, a development company. Okay, so in that industry, it's well understood of change orders, things like this. I feel like that might be something we'd need to teach clients though in a little bit, because right now, for example, we've moved to a fixed fee service and, and for the most part, it's working out very well. But exactly what you said, there's unforeseen circumstances that come up. So do you think that the way clients have been educated and how this works so far will require a, a bit of an adjustment as well? Yeah, I, I think so. Because I, you know, depending on the clients you're talking about, fixed fee means different things, right? So when you're buying a car, it's 30,000 bucks plus tax, plus PDI, plus, and we all kind of get that. But in, in industries like construction, you're kind of going, okay, it's $20 million, but there's probably going to be scope changes in here, or there's going to be unforeseen uh, soil conditions or, or what have you that we're going to find. And, and we all understand that. So to the extent that the train's not the right word, we can get yeah. people accustomed to the fact that when I say 16, it's not buying a car fixed fee, it's construction fixed fee with a whole bunch right. of parameters on it. And that's probably a good way to position it to people to say, it's like, if you're hiring someone to redo your bathroom and they open the ceiling and there's right. environmental contamination, you're going to get charged extra to get that cleaned up and, and whatever the damages cost. That's Actually, the- I love that. And I speak to a lot of clients and I'm going to use that analogy because I think that captures it very well and can help frame what we're doing in the right perspective. Because again, we don't want to come across as trying to say something where we're not, but I do think moving to that. And then again, putting some of the risk back on the lawyer to make sure that they're doing things efficiently and effectively at the end of the day, it's needed for innovation. In my opinion, the, the risk thing is, is it's just fair, right? <laughs> We're not trying, it, it's just fair for the parties to have a risk sharing arrangement, not where it's all completely one-sided. I, to, to me, it's just weird when that, there are lots of lawyers who just say, I'm taking no risk on this. I'm just going to charge you based on whatever. So it, it, we're yeah. talking about fairness. Well, but here's <laughs> the thing is, is if you look at the rules of professional conduct in most provinces, not, and I haven't looked at all of them, right? But if you look at, you know, Alberta, you look at BC, you look at Ontario, you, you know, a lot of them, they all talk about the same thing is that lawyers should be fair and efficient and cost-effective and accessible, Right. So the question becomes, 
shouldn't you be managing your practice in that way and not saying, you know, it is what it is because then that's not efficient or cost-effective or very accessible for people. And are you breaching the rules of professional conduct by engaging in that kind of pricing with your clients? And we, you know, that's a long discussion, but that's something, honestly, whenever I raise it, the room kind of goes silent. The subject, you know, changes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting point, but let's talk about something else. To me, I felt, I felt that even in law school before I practiced and there was like this very strange, and it was so different than business school. Business school felt more just like ordinary school, law school. There was more of like this old school culture that started hitting you from like the second you walked into that law school building. And again, having come just off of running a contracting business, estimating, and I was looking at lawyers like $400 an hour painters. And like, my friends did not like that. That was like very <laughs> offensive. And again, I go back to like, I, I don't think, you know, lawyers are on average, very smart people, able to learn very complex things, but creativity definitely feels like a weakness in our industry. And again, coming back to that, that risk aversion and just going with the flow. And I, I think this probably is going to tie back to the conversation we were just having about the deficiencies of the, the partnership model for large groups, which is the leaders of those partnership models, you know, of the partnerships, the law firms across Canada have been in it the longest. And that's just the way it has always been and the way it continues to be. You know, how do you get that type of change when the leaders in these firms, you know, have a, the least incentive to change because they're going to be leaving soon but also you know they've been through it and you just see it time and time again and it's i don't know what year in the firm that the lawyer hits where they've you said given up on trying to create anything new or or change anything in the current dynamic but what are your thoughts on that like how does the the leadership and the partnership structure play with this inability to move beyond the billable hour and you know the other changes that we i think can all agree we need to see i think the the reality is that these big, like the bigger firms are not going to change. They're not being forced to change by clients. They're not being forced to change by any competition. So the real answer to change in the profession is guys like you and Matt going out and pushing the envelope and saying, here's a different model. Here's a different way of doing things. Or people starting up their own firm using a different model in a different way. And once we get to the point where those new players cause enough of a fuss in the marketplace, then maybe you change the bigger ships. But the bigger ships, I, I think, honestly, are unchangeable now. Think about the vested interest. Who benefits in the firm from changing? No one. You know, there are people are going to say, but, you know, I think we're leaving way too much money on the table if we don't charge by the hour. And I'm not prepared to do that because I've got two kids in university. I've got, you know, uh, two homes and three cars and my spouse doesn't want to work. Right. And, yeah. and so the, you just have to look at who benefits from change in the firm. And it's not all the people who are benefiting from the way it is now. You actually had a beautiful line in one of your books where you said agility is simply not possible in large partnership structures where partners can derail a proposal because it will reduce their draws. And essentially that, I guess, is what you're getting at. 
there's just too much of an incentive to stay the course to make any changes, if I'm understanding you right. Right. Well, think about, look, look at COVID, right? COVID was a great example is COVID hits last year in what, March, 2020, we started to do shutdowns. Yes. And all the law firms freaked out. And so the, the first thing, the knee jerk reaction or most law firms, and this is consistent around the world is, okay, we got to start laying people off, right? right? We don't even know what the economic impact of COVID will be, but we're scared. So, you know, put a whole bunch of people on leave, on unpaid leave, do all this kind of stuff to save money, save money, save money, because God forbid that my draw should be a bit short this month. And then now we're over a year later and so many firms have had blowout years. Associates are able to command ridiculous sums of money now because there are not enough associates out there for the amount of work. Right. And so I say, does nobody look at these firms and say, you really don't know what you're doing. You just go with the wind, right? Is like COVID. Oh my God, lay people off, protect my draw. Oh, we're making lots of money. Oh, everything's fine again. Right. This sort of back and forth to and fro way of working is is just ridiculous but it shows you where the incentives are it's like it's all about the people who want to protect their income source at all costs well and what i found so interesting you know in my three four years at the big shop was how consistent they move together. You know, that's why when coming out of law school, you've got the table and it shows you like yeah, every firm is paying every associate in that exact same year, almost identical. And, you know, like they just move in lockstep. One moves first. They're probably talking to the other guys and then they all move together, which again, it's a cartel. And they do like, if you talk to the, the sort of the, the seven sister firms or maybe make it a bit bigger, they, they actually do talk and say, okay, what is everybody paying their associates, right? Because we need to know so that we're not underpaying and, you know, we're not overpaying. They do work together. And totally. And so- they also take over recruitment, which is yeah. one of my biggest sticking points where I think the law school has got to do a better job because I know in my experience and Matt's experience, there was only one option that was presented to law students as you know, a viable, good option. Everything else was secondary. First year recruiting, you've been in law school for 15 minutes and you've got to pick which big firm you're going to be at. Like, yeah. You're still trying to figure out where your locker is, and, you know, and then you have to make a decision about what firm to work at. Now, Mitch, feel free to respond to that, but I do want to move on to what needs to change too, because I'd love to get your thoughts on that. So if you have any final thoughts on uh, uh, the sins of the of the partnership model, please let us know. You know, I just I, it would just be nice if people had a, a, a different perspective on on how you could do things differently. I, you know what? I'm going to say something really radical here. I think what's wrong with the profession is we're not humble enough, and we're not humble enough to understand that we have a skill set. And it's a good skill set. It's interesting and help. It's helpful. There are also lots of areas where it's not helpful at all. But the profession seems to think that because we're really good in this narrow band of skill set called logical reasoning and legal reasoning, somehow that makes us better than everyone else in society, and that entitles us to charge ridiculous amounts of money for our services instead of saying, 
the guy who's building out my bathroom, I couldn't build out my bathroom. I could, I could do his contract for him, but he's the guy doing the heavy lifting and figuring out where the pipes go and all this stuff and making it look really nice. I don't have that skill set. I'm not better than him. And why should I be paid like so much more than, you know, the plumber who's making 80 bucks an hour or 90 bucks an hour or whatever. I'm worth $600 an hour because I'm special and, and I'm a lawyer. And I think that sort of mindset is why legal services are expensive, accessible, because we think we're so damn special. I'm not saying that we're not special. I'm just saying we have a skill set. Lots of people have skill sets. Okay, so we're all kind of the same. We all sort of work, we should be working together to make a better society using our different skill sets. But when we get into law school and we start to be told, you guys are the cream of the cream and, you know, 3,000 people apply to this law school and there's only 150 of you. So you're like magically special and that's drilled into you time and time again. And then the whole process throughout law school is very adversarial and you're fighting for jobs as we already talked about. It, it, it creates a mindset I think that's not healthy and it comes down to just be humble. You have a skill set that you can help people. That's yeah. it. I do think that, you know, the school the intellect required to be a lawyer probably does justify more than your average plumber. But what I can't wrap my head around is if that plumber came in and said, you know, even if he said I, I cost 80 bucks an hour, I'll let you know, you know, when I'm done. And then he's in there yeah. for a week and you're like, what, like what's going on? <laughs> I totally. so that's the piece to me fundamentally when it comes to the business model that we practice as a profession on average being the billable hour it just doesn't make sense. It's not good for anybody. And it really, to your point, the entitlement, the lack of humbleness and the extortionate hourly rates, it comes back to, in my mind, straight up this abuse of a regulated monopoly that our profession has had for a very long time that prevents others from offering the services we do. And in this honestly kind of remarkable way, the whole profession has come together to propel that abuse forward. And it's, it, you know, and I, I never view lawyers as bad people because most lawyers are good people, good lawyers, but the system that they operate within and that they just succumb to and then just roll with is so fundamentally broken. And that's why you've got a ton of miserable lawyers and three quarters of the population not getting the legal help they need. Well, the, the, I, and I'm going to ride this horse even more. That's because we're not humble enough, right? Because mm. The law societies have said, no, 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 you, you know, you got you person down the street, you can't build a tech company to create something that will help people or you paralegals can't help people because only the lawyers right. are allowed to do this because we're magical and special. But you're right. The regulatory hurdle is ridiculous and it hurts. It hurts everyone. And I want to dig into that because we talked a lot about the big shops and, you know, the billable hour, but we haven't talked much about the regulator. I think it's hard for regulators because they don't have huge staffs. You got this little regulator bodies in each province who lack coordination, as far as I can tell, for the most part. And, you know, they are the ones that operate and, you know, enforce the rules that bind lawyers. So what role do you see the regulator playing or not playing in hope of building some, you know, a better future for lawyers and clients? 
let me let me say even more radical. I think there should be one regulator for all the common law provinces, right? One Canadian regulator, in, in which you know people will go apoplectic because everybody has their vested interests. Um, one law <laughs> society with one CEO and one president of the law society and X number of ventures and stuff like that, and and so that you have consistency across the all the common law provinces in any event, but also. I think you have to realize that not everything a lawyer does is needs law school to do. And so that right. there are aspects of legal services that are not hyper legal and therefore can be done in a different way. And as long as you put some not too heavy guardrails around it, it can be done by someone who didn't go to law school. And we have to understand that and finally agree upon that and allow those people in. Because if the role of the regulator is to regulate in the public interest, which it, it is, it's supposed to be in, in every common law province anyways, then we have to rethink that because the public interest part always gets lost. It's, it seems to be more protectionist for the benefit of the lawyers. And then we throw on the cloak of public interest because if it's in lawyer's interest it's in automatically in the public interest and that's i don't see that at all i disagree with that violently and so the regulators need to rethink that and then rethink exactly what that regulations would look like and so we you know we see the stuff happening in bc with their sandbox which seems to be very broad in terms of what they're willing to look at so we'll see where that goes ontario has a new sandbox that only deals with tech though, right? It's not, it's not looking at ownership and, or, or different service providers. It's technology. And I guess with the view that it will let some tech companies provide some legal services. Um, Is that the way forward that you see then Mitch? Because you, know, you, you said previously that you just don't think obviously big firms are going to change and uh, it doesn't seem like they're being forced by their, the clients, potentially some competition. Like we have some outsiders like KPMG that seem to be encroaching a little bit maybe, but for the most part, it doesn't seem like there's much incentive for them to do things differently. So do you think that the, the regulations and allowing for this type of innovation is going to be an important part of, you know, allowing for a diversification of the way we provide legal services. Cause I, you know, even with good lawyer, we we're going to run up against a few things, which we, and again, we're, we would argue that we're, Hey, this isn't the public interest. We're trying to get legal services more accessible, but kind of to your point, there's a bit of a sleight of hand. It seems sometimes where it's, if it's in the lawyer's best interest, then it's in the public's best interest. Then we're saying, hold on a second. Is that always true? Because for us to be more efficient, sometimes we may have to like, we're saying, why can't someone else do that? You know, uh, or just this tiny little part of it. Is that, is that the way that we can see some change here? Yeah, that's, that's a necessary part because it, it, until the regulators really get on board, we're still going to be playing around the edges, right? There's going to be so many gray areas where people are going to say, I think I'm okay, maybe I'm okay, let's, let's hope the regulator doesn't freak out. And, and there's certainly been in, instances, certainly in Ontario, where the regulator has gone after legal tech companies who are really just providing information and putting the pieces together for people that anyone could really do. If you just read the statute, for instance, right? And you just go, if, if this, then that. 
So until we get some regulatory change, again, we're still going to be in this weird nether world where stuff is, some stuff is gray and some people are doing some interesting things as long as they don't go too far. But wholesale change, there's a definite regulatory component to it. Yeah. And I mean, the, the one regulator for all the common laws, basically all the, the provinces captured, which I think are all of them except Quebec, by the New West Trade Partnership that allows lawyers to practice in all the jurisdictions up to 100 days. And we learned that one working at the big shop because you're working for clients all over the place. Like you're not isolated as a lawyer to your province. You're isolated to your you know competency. And if you're a business lawyer, you're competent to provide services basically right across the country. So if you can already do that with literally no form, like nothing, you don't, you don't, you can just do it. It makes no sense to have all these different people making slightly different rules across the board. And I just love that you just keep coming back to that humbleness. And for mm -hmm. me, that's the piece that always stuck in law school and then felt it more in practice was fundamentally our profession has a monopoly because we are supposed to be here to serve the public interest and be, you know, that kind of third party. So government can't get too tyrannical and things like, but the whole foundation of our profession is to serve in the public interest. And when you see a stat like 77% of legal needs going unmet, and we are the only people allowed to provide proper legal services for those people, like how does that not just on its face scream, something needs to change? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're preaching to the choir hundred percent. Like it, it's, it, it's just so obvious, right? It's so incredibly obvious. Um, and yet apparently it's not. I guess just to draw this conversation to, to a close, because I, I think we could go on for hours here. But I guess my final question to you is, uh, are you optimistic about the legal system? Like, will it change? And how concerned citizens, whether they be lawyers, clients, students or otherwise get involved like how if you were saying hey here's how you can affect change how do you go about doing that so i'll leave that to you just a small one <laughs> uh, it, it, it depends on the day of the week whether i feel that the profession is is going to change and can change and and will change i think the change will come when individual lawyers take it upon themselves and decide to change. And it sounds like incredibly stupid what I just told you, but until we get a critical mass of lawyers who, who say this is just wrong, right? It's mm -hmm. just wrong the way we're doing things and the way we're treating our clients and the, the fact that we're not meeting any of these needs. Until we get that critical mass, it's the, the profession is just gonna carry on like its own. Because we've gone through COVID, COVID is kind of the pilot project from what I'm going to tell you next is that what we've all seen from COVID is that we don't need to be a lawyer in a big firm. We don't need office space. We don't need all the bells and whistles that we've been told and it's been ingrained to us that we absolutely positively need. And so you guys are now the masters of your own fortune. You can go out and make a good living doing law in whatever area discipline that you want. You can provide services affordably and you can build your own practice without spending lots of money. And so when your costs come down, that means you're more comfortable going out and doing something differently. And you can in fact 
attract more clients because your, your fees are much more affordable. And so I think that the path forward may be more and more students coming out of law school and just going out on their own. And we start to see a return of law as a cottage industry of a whole bunch of people just doing their own thing. I mean, that's, I think that's where the change happens because the big guys aren't going to change. The mid guys aren't going to change. So that's the way forward. And, you know, here there's a student in my class, former student who did exactly that. And I bring her back to speak to my students to say, here's one of your classmates from, well, not classmates anymore, but she graduated four years ago out on her own, hear her story. It is possible now that we've had COVID, it's even more possible. Why do you think that downtown firms are the only way to go? You know, the, I've asked this question to some of the lawyers in my GC role. I've said to them quite pointedly, I said, you know, we, I like working with you. I'm quite happy. If you were not part of ABC firm, don't care. Still give you this work. You haven't, you've never, we've actually never met in person ever. And we still like the way you do work. We're happy with the way you're, you're doing your pricing. How many other clients are you having this conversation with where people are saying, why are you still at that big firm? Why don't you just go out on your own? We're still gonna give you the work. And the answer that I consistently get is they're afraid. They're afraid that the reason why they get work is because they have this umbrella of other services around them, which I don't think is entirely true. They also don't want to deal with the billing and accounting issues that somehow to them seem insurmountable to do on your own or to even hire a bookkeeper to just do it once a month for you or whatever, like a sole practitioner. But there is also a small group who are realizing that they don't need the big firm and are starting to break away on their own. And you know, there's, there's an example uh, of a lawyer out in Ottawa um, who's done exactly that. And, you know, you should get her on the podcast too. We can talk about that offline. Sure. But sure. It's, so, so these sort of breakaways into, you know, back to the cottage industry way of practicing law, I think will probably be what eventually change us. It's going to be slow, uh, right. but I think that's really the way forward. But that's exactly, you know, you nailed it. All those fears about going out on your own, and being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, you know, most people didn't go to law school because they wanted to be entrepreneurs. Like I'm very strange in that regard, but seven years of school to then, you know, be thrust into becoming a small business owner, which is what you are. If you're a solo <laughs> practitioner or in a small firm is a lot and it is terrifying. And I think that is a huge reason why so many people just stay with the status quo that they don't love, but they can kind of, you know, drudgery, drudgery, you know, they just accept it. They accept the stress because the fear of the unknown is too great. And really that's what we're trying to unlock is to reduce that fear by taking care of all the stuff that doesn't make you a lawyer. And so, you know, our hope is that we can be one of the levers to expedite that shift to the cottage industry, which is exactly where I think we will end up because you know, the big firms can service a certain world, but that 77% of unmet legal needs are not being serviced by anybody right now. And being able to take the full profits from being a solo and put that right into your pocket, lawyers will work for a hundred bucks an hour. I know that 
they do it. But that hundred bucks is going right in their pocket and they're making a great living. So yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish on the future, but I definitely uh, know there's a long way to go and uh, ways to go. I think we can leave it there. That was uh, once again, Mitch, fantastic stuff. Hey, we'll thanks guys. November 3rd, future of law at the good Lord. November Summit. 3rd. I'm Mitch there. going to be there. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.